What is the gospel? Uh, the word gospel, it simply means good news, and it's a shorthand way of referring to the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the way that we speak about all that Jesus has accomplished for us and for the world and for the universe through his work on the cross and by the power of his resurrection. And in this series, we're seeking to expand our understanding of the gospel. We're slowly working through the second chapter of Ephesians. And in each sermon, we're taking a look at the gospel from a slightly different angle. And as I said, in doing so, our hope is not just to increase our knowledge about the gospel, but our awe in the gospel, our delight with the gospel, our joy in the gospel. So what is the gospel? We began this series by looking at how the gospel is good news about what we have been saved from. We've been saved from sin. God saved us from death and from evil and from ourselves and from wrath. And the weighty seriousness of what our lives were like before God's intervention actually serves to amplify God's profound love, not diminish it. Because even when we were at our worst, even when we were dead in trespasses, even when we had become by nature children of wrath, God made us alive with Christ Jesus. Now, I could say a lot more about this than I did last week. And so if you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go listen to it online. Today, we're going to look at the gospel from another angle. So we've considered how the gospel is good news about what we've been saved from. Now we're going to consider how the gospel is good news about what we've been saved by. And the gospel is good news about how we're saved by the immeasurable riches of God's grace. We're going to look at that through three points. We're going to look at grace, boasting, and faith. Grace, boasting, and faith. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the second chapter of Ephesians, or if you've memorized it, open up your mind Bible. And uh, we're going to focus on verses 8 through 9, uh, but to situate ourselves, we'll read from verses 4 through 9. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one of our gray church Bibles home with you. Paul writes, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here's where we'll focus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's begin with our first point, grace. Twice, you may have noticed, Paul has said, by grace you are saved. We are saved by grace. We're set right with God and restored into loving union with God, not by anything we have ever done, but by grace alone, by God's sure grace and kindness demonstrated toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is what we call the doctrine of justification. And this is so crucial that the reformer John Calvin said that justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. If you do not understand justification, if you do not understand how we're saved by grace, you do not understand salvation. So what do we mean when we say we are saved by grace? 
Immediately, you might be thinking about saying grace over a meal, or you might be thinking of someone with extraordinary elegance, namely myself, or someone who has the name grace. These are our common usages of the word grace. But when it comes to grace in the scriptures, the classic definition is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. But favor sounds kind of old-fashioned, and so people try to say it's, it's undeserved love. That's another try. Grace is undeserved love. But what love is ever deserved? The minute deserving comes into it, the romance and the emotion, it all falls away, doesn't it? A simple, snappy uh, definition of grace is offered up by Paul Zoll. Grace is one-way love. Grace is one-way love. More specifically, Zoll defines it like this. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. This is the one-way love of grace. And I quite like this definition of grace because it captures the risk and the scandal of grace. Think about the pain of loving someone and not being loved in return. Have you ever been in that situation of uh, unrequited love where you've fallen in love with someone but the feelings aren't mutual? You know, often in plays like Twelfth Night by Shakespeare, unrequited love is depicted in a sort of love triangle. You know, Mr. So-and-so loves Mrs. So-and-so, but Mrs. So-and-so loves another Mr. So-and-so, and so it goes. And there's something so deeply tragic about love being unreturned, about love being unrequited. And God has loved us with an unrelenting and yet unrequited love. Because the scriptures convict us and our own experiences affirm we do not love God as we ought. We do not return love toward the God who has loved us immeasurably. Michelangelo's painting, The Creation of Adam, captures our, our fallen humanity so well. God moves towards us with this astounding love and we respond with limp disinterest. We're not devoid of love. We're not unloving creatures all the time. It's actually that our loves are so easily misdirected. I'm so indebted to St. Augustine on this point. He wrote, We must love things in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. He cared a lot about rightly ordered love, but that is fundamental to the human experience. It's not that we don't love, it's that we don't love rightly. Our love can become disordered. We're so readily preoccupied with other loves, lesser loves, and even weaker loves than the love of God. We love creation. We love the sky. We love the mountains. We love our bodies, some of us. We love hiking and skiing and eating. We love us some pizza. You know, we love dancing and alcohol and sex. Not that all three always go together, but sometimes. And, you know, we love life and people, at least some people. And we love animals and we love things and we love technology and we love apps and widgets and texts and gifts. And these are inherently bad things. 
but we make them ultimate things. We make them greater things. We love them more than we ought to love them. And I haven't even touched on how we can love wrong things, unhealthy things, destructive things. We can love someone's misfortune, even though we might not ever say it out loud. We can love the rush of lust, the delight of gossip, or the joy of feeling superior. And so if we consider our use of time, our use of money, our use of energy, what captures our attention, what do you love the most? If someone looked at your life objectively, knowing nothing about what you think and feel and believe, if they could just see what you do, how would they say you live your life? What do you love the most? And is your love even closely or even remotely close to being rightly ordered? And our disordered love can be tragic. And so there's a risk to loving people like us. And all the same, God has loved us with an eternal and unbridled love, even though it often does not go returned. Even though we do not love God as we ought, God still moves toward us with love. Because God's love does not depend on our response. God's love is a one-way love. God loves us because God loves us. And for no other reason than this, God loves us. And this is what makes grace scandalous, too. There's a risk because God's love does not often come back returned. But it's scandalous because grace is not bound to playing it safe. It's a love that loves and loves and loves and loves through rejection and abuse and manipulation and disinterest. It's a love that persists and shows up and remains in places we think it should not go the den of thieves, the beds of prostitutes, the homes of tax collectors are just some of the scriptural examples. And the greatest scandal of all is how God's love shows up on two crooked beams where Christ was crucified. As Paul has written, but by grace you've been saved. And he says it again, by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace is bound up with salvation. Grace saves. If you want to know grace, this one-way love, we must follow where it leads us down the path of salvation. Grace leads to the cross because there God's immeasurable love is on display for the whole world to see. And it scandalizes us. Left to our own natural thoughts, We do not think we need something so extreme as a cross to reorder our love, to heal our lives, let alone to save us. But the testimony in Scripture about the cross again and again is that there was no other way. If there was another way, God would have taken it. This was what was necessary. Jesus even says, this is why I came into the world. If Christ had not died, we would still be dead in our sins and remain forever alienated from God's love. This scandalizes us. Left to our natural thoughts, we don't think we need something that extreme. We do. And the cross scandalizes us because it's a display of affection. It's a display of love like we've never seen before. 
The Apostle Paul writes elsewhere in the book of Romans, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the love displayed on the cross is no ordinary love. It's a love that we have never encountered or, or found uh, within ourselves because it's divine love. It's God's love, suffering and hurting beyond our comprehension, all for the sake of forgiving us and reconciling us to himself. And so this display of love exposes just how weak and disordered our own love really is. And we don't deserve to be loved like this. And yet we are. And that's why Paul describes grace fundamentally as a gift. He writes in verse 8, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. In other words, grace was offered to us before we ever asked for it. Grace was demonstrated towards us before we were ever looking for it. And if you have a desire for grace, it is a sign that grace is already upon your life because grace precedes grace. Or as St. John puts it, we love because God first loved us. God first showed grace to us. God first took the initiative to save us and we are only ever responding to what he has already done. And because grace is a gift, because it is the gift of God loving us first, we can never earn it. We can never be entitled to it. You do not have a right to it. We can't even measure up to being partially deserving of this gift. All we can do is open up our hands, open up our hearts, open up our lives, and humbly and greatly receive everything God wants to lavish upon us, all of the boundless love that he wants to share with us in Christ. But grace is not general. It's a gift from God for all of humanity, that's true. But it's also a gift from God for you. The pastor and great spiritual writer of the last century, A.W. Tozer, wrote, Jesus died for you as certainly as if you had been the only one lost. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. Jesus died for you as certainly as if you were the only one lost. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. But it's here, at this critical juncture of grace, that we might actually start to resist grace. And perhaps you might not even realize it. We can speak about grace intellectually and generally. We can describe it. We can look at scriptures. But can we speak about grace experientially and personally, as if God had sent his son to die if you were the only person on the world. And so with this quick sketch of grace in mind, let's now consider boasting. Let's look at boasting. Often what keeps us from grace, experientially and personally, is nothing other than ourselves. 
The Apostle Paul knows this and he's aware of this, which is why he adds a qualifier in verse 8. Did you see it? No one can boast. It's not a result of works. It's a gift. So no one can boast. If you know grace, you cannot boast. If you brought something to the table, if you had some inalienable right to grace, you could flaunt some credentials. But Paul stresses that it's not ourselves. It's not by our works. It's not by anything we have ever thought to do or anything we have ever done. It's a gift. Therefore, you cannot boast. It excludes boasting. And so I want to consider two kinds of boasting that can distort grace. There's boasting out of pride and there's boasting out of shame. And each are a way that we might keep grace at arm's length purposefully or without realizing it at all. So what does it look like to boast out of pride? The boxing heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali once said, I am not the greatest. I am the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. The basketball Hall of Famer Larry Bird once said to his teammates, caught on camera, you guys want to win the game? Give me the ball and get out of the way. Kanye West said, I like that that just elicits preemptive laughter. I am the number one human being in music. That means any person that's living or breathing is number two, but my all-time favorite from Kanye is this. My greatest pain in life is that I'll never see myself perform. But we kind of love this fragrant boasting, don't we? We kind of love it. It's shocking, but we kind of enjoy the absurdity of it, don't we? But then there's the humble brag. For example, why do guys always hit on me? I don't like to mention this, but I went to Harvard. I was hanging out with uh, Brad, Brad Pitt, the other night, and he told me I'm so down to earth. And a new study from Harvard recently uncovered how people actually hate the humble brag more than they hate flagrant bragging. And the reason is that what's worse than no humility is false humility. We'd rather see naked pride and arrogance on display instead of it parading around dressed up as if it's humility. But the humble brag helps us connect with something unappealing about boasting. It's unattractive. It doesn't look good. But this is true of any kind of boasting. The unashamed boasting of the extremely talented or the humble brag of your coworker Jan. Any form of boasting is actually arrogance. Because when you boast, you're pointing to yourself. You're pointing to your own greatness. You're pointing to your own worthiness. And so boasting is both, uh, is both absurd and unattractive. And while these extreme examples of boasting or humble bragging are almost you know, comical, we're, it's easy to overlook how we are disposed to boasting. We might do it more quietly, but we're inclined to boast just like anybody else. And this is true, especially when it comes to, pay, to, to faith. If this weren't true, Paul would have no need to emphasize that those who encounter grace have no right to boast, and yet he stresses this because we're inclined to do so. We find ways to boast. We can find ways to loudly or quietly say to God, I can measure up. 
I can measure up to your standards. I have done what it takes to be saved, to be accepted, to be welcomed in your presence. And the loud boasting is more obvious. That's the the people who who talk about what they're doing for God and they believe what they're doing for God is how they're accepted. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And we'll look at this in the fifth week more, but Paul does have in mind his Jewish brethren here. They believed they were set right with God simply by being born a Jew. And they boasted in their ethnicity. They boasted in their Judaism because they were God's people. And Paul says, you can't boast in anything. Even if God called your nation into being, you are set apart by grace, not by works. That's loud boasting. But then there's quiet boasting. And quiet boasting is less obvious. Because we might not say it out loud, but it's boasting all the same. Have you ever done the right things for God, but mostly as an internal checklist or as a tally? Let's press into that a bit more. Because on an intellectual level, you might say we're saved by grace, not by what we do, but then on a practical level, you're still living as if it depends on what you do and how you live. Does your sense of acceptance and approval with God fluctuate? depending on how consistently you've been reading scripture and praying and doing the right things from God. Does how close you feel to God correlate to how disciplined you've been? And do you feel more distance and fear that maybe you aren't accepted by God when you fall short of these certain disciplines? Don't get me wrong, these are good things. We should read scripture and pray and serve the poor and give generously and all of that. But do you internally keep track of what you're doing, to make sure you've got all your T's crossed, all your I's dotted before God. And if so, why? Why are you keeping track? Are you driven by an effort to secure approval from God? Or to assure your own conscience? Or to prove you're good enough? If our sense of security or our sense of acceptance or our sense of being loved by God is bound up in any way to our performance or our track record, at at best we've distorted grace and at worst we failed to understand grace at all. Because even if we don't realize it, we're boasting in what we've done or failed to do. And if this is the case, if our sense of confidence and acceptance is based on the things we do, if we feel close to God based on how disciplined we've been, even though there is some truth to that, it shows that you're not actually resting in grace. You're resting in what you do, or you're afraid because of what you failed to do. And it's boasting, not arrogant boasting, quiet boasting. But it's boasting. And it's a sign that you still don't know grace. Because your sense of acceptance and your confidence, your security, it's not coming from God's gift of grace. It's still related to your performance. On the other hand, you might critique religious people uh, for doing what is good out of obligation and not doing it for goodness's sake. I remember these billboards that were up in the UK where atheists took out the sides of buses that said, there's no God, so just be good for goodness sake. And that was during Advent season. And we could critique religious people for doing what is good or what what is right because they're afraid. Or they want to earn God's approval. This is a fair critique at times. And perhaps, though, 
this critique aside, you've looked at your life and you've said, look, I can't know if there's a God either way. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But one day I'm going to die and I'm going to find out. And if there's a God, he will see that I lived as a good person. And if he doesn't accept that, I don't want anything to do with him anyways. Do you see? You're boasting. You're claiming that how you lived your life is so exemplary, so much so that the creator of the universe should bend down and lend you his ear and then be impressed by the wonders you'll whisper to him. You're boasting about your good deeds as if they are so genuinely good that the only being in the universe that can be called good should be impressed. You're not far behind Ali, Bird, or West. So when it comes to salvation, boasting, any kind of boasting, loud or quiet boasting, religious or irreligious boasting, it's all absurd and unattractive. Because in boasting, we're demanding God's acceptance all while rejecting his grace. It's absurd. We're saying, I want you to accept me on my terms. I will not be accepted on your terms. Just as grace excludes boasting, we see boasting excludes grace. Because it's refusing grace. It's refusing the gift. That's how we boast out of pride. But there's... Another way we boast, we can boast out of shame, the inversion. The Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the post-World War II era, has a story that he shares about a practical and simple test he would administer. He he was a doctor previously, but that he would give to someone after explaining the way of Christ, explaining the way of grace. And he would ask someone, now, are you ready to be a Christian? And if they hesitated, he would say, well, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And often people would say this to him. I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And this is what Lloyd-Jones wrote. At once, I know that I'd been wasting my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough yet, but it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, I'm not good enough, you're denying God. You're denying the gospel. You're denying the very essence of faith. Then he continues. How can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you've almost entered into the depths of hell. It does not matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. When your shame says something is wrong with me, God could never accept me. You're still focusing on yourself and not on grace. It sounds like humility, but it's not. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And that is an important distinction. It can sound humble to be uh, beating yourself up and to be focusing on how broken you are, but that's not humility. You're still talking about yourself. You're still focused on yourself. And in some way, you're still self-absorbed. Humility is thinking about ourselves less by thinking about God more. And if you think you need to clean yourself up to enter into God's presence, you're missing grace. You can never clean yourself up 
That's the point. The most moral person in the world and the worst person in the world are in equal standing before the cross of Christ. You'll never clean yourself up enough for grace. But if you boast in your shame, if you say, I'm too far gone, I have more to do before I'm ready or I could be accepted by God, you're still living as if you're saved by what you do and what you have to do. You're not living in grace and you're actually putting limits on grace. You're saying God's grace couldn't be big enough to meet you as you are, even at your worst. So I think we need to ask, what's going on beneath our boasting? Whether we boast from pride or whether we boast from shame, what's happening in here? Isn't it our deep desire and yearning to be accepted? To feel like we measure up? Behind the smoke and the mirrors, behind the masks we might put on in public, isn't all our boasting compensating for how strangely insecure we can feel no matter how much we have or how talented we may be or what we may have accomplished? See, the person who boasts in pride is masking their insecurity. The person who boasts in shame is wearing their insecurity, but it's the same problem. Any kind of boasting comes out of the heart that's trying to justify itself, the heart that's trying to justify its own existence to prove its worth, to prove it measures up, that it matters. Because deep down, we all sense something is wrong. Something needs to be done about it. I need to make something right about myself. And that is a correct inclination that we should not deny. But so long as we boast in quiet or loud ways, we will resist grace from becoming personal and experiential because grace has to meet you in that deep place of insecurity and that desperate desire to be accepted and to have your existence justified. But why does no one have a right to boast? Because some people are good and moral people. Why can't we boast before God? Think about how humanity was described in the first three chapters of this epistle. If we're dead, if we're disobedient, if we're by nature children of wrath, what can we possibly boast about at all? What could we possibly point to in ourselves that makes us worthy of praise, deserving of God's affection, or so outstanding before our maker that we would be entitled to grace? And so having considered how boasting keeps us from grace, let's now consider faith. And let's do so first by considering some ancient technology. When I was 12, my dad bought me my first computer. And the thing was the best of the best for 1993. 17-inch monitor, 486 processor, some of you don't even know what that is, 512 bytes of RAM, one gigabyte hard drive, you know, uh, and I even, it came stocked with Windows 3.1, the most revolutionary operating system. I'm talking power people. And I was a nerd, so I was stoked. And I was so elated that it led to a spontaneous and unusual display of affection in our home. We're a stoic home, and emotions are meant to be swallowed and not expressed home. We're a frozen home, you know, conceal it, don't feel it. That's how my family operated. But I was so elated that I just ran to my dad in this unusual display of affection, and I flung my arms around him. I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you, I love you, I love you. And my father said, very good, and walked away. 
Now, it's difficult, it's extremely difficult to find an illustration sufficient for the gift of grace. Obviously, grace is much better than a 486 computer. I want that to be something you walk out of this room with this morning. But grace is also better than the gift of holding your firstborn for the first time or the, the elation you feel when you've accomplished a goal like graduating or moving or whatever it might be, whatever gift you might experience, whatever gratitude you may have known in this life, grace is always an amplification beyond that, beyond our comprehension. The immeasurable riches of grace. And so the only appropriate response to grace is no boasting but gratitude. An eternal, unending praise. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and again, thank you, and thank you, and thank you. At least that is the response of a heart that has encountered grace. In fact, if you trace the root of grace in the Greek, you will find a verb that means, I rejoice, I am glad. You see, the only real and appropriate response to grace is humble gratitude. Taking our eyes off of ourselves and all our imperfections or all our greatness and fixing them on what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and the love that he lavishes upon us. If you're struggling on in your faith, don't look to yourself, look to Christ. That's humility. The gratitude flows out of it as we understand what we've been saved from, as we understand what we've been saved by, we live lives of gratitude, a grateful receiving of all that God has for us, of all the goodness he's lavished upon us in Christ, an endless praise of thank you, thank you, thank you. So how do we receive this gift of grace? We're saved by grace through faith. I want to warn you not to internalize that as we're saved by faith through grace. Your faith matters, but your faith does not save you. It opens you up to grace, but it does not save you. Grace saves you, which means this. God is not looking for perfect faith or strong faith or impressive faith or flawless faith or faith without doubts. If all of us had that kind of faith, we would be moving mountains according to Jesus. That God loves you with a risky and scandalous love. God has moved mountains to be with you. He has done everything to save you in Christ. And so faith trusts not in itself. Faith does not put its faith in its faith, but in grace. And so how strong your faith may be in a given moment is not what matters. What matters is the strength of God's love demonstrated to you in the power of Christ's redemption on the cross. That is what saves you. Faith is the way you receive it with humility and gratitude. And when you're saved by grace through faith, when you rest in this truth, our misdirected and disordered loves all that gnawing insecurity, the desire to be accepted, the need to justify our existence, it can be and will be healed because as Paul says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you right now. God knows the worst about you and he is the one who loves you the most. And the fact that God the God of the universe sees you and knows you by name and loved you while you were dead and has made you alive in Christ, that justifies your existence. You exist to be beloved. 
to be known and beloved. It doesn't get any better than that. So take your eyes off of yourself and fix them on Jesus. Because as the scriptures say many, many times, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble.